6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 19, verses 19 and 20. The two moons of Mars are very difficult to see. They're, the largest one is only eight miles across, and they have an albedo, that is a reflectivity, of only 3%. In other words, they're almost black. They're very hard to see, except with some very excellent optical instruments. In 1877, Asaph Hall, using a brand new telescope at that time in the U.S. Naval Observatory, made astronomical history by discovering the two moons of Mars. The question, of course, raises, is raises, is how did, jo did Jonathan Swift know about the two moons of Mars 150 years earlier? No. He was a friend of John Herschel and some of the other astronomers of his day, and clearly there was no awareness of any moons on Mars in, in the astronomical history. Well, then how did Jonathan Swift... Oh, and by the way, the, the, the account in Gulliver's Third Voyage mentions the rotation, Kepler's, Kepler's equations for planetary motion, which were known in those days, but it mentions the rotation, and one of the moons of Mars is counter-rotating. It's the only counter-rotating satellite in our solar system. And yet, that's the way it's mentioned. And some people say, well, it was a lucky guess. Sure. <laughs> what puzzles scholars is, did Jonathan Swift know about the two moons of Mars? And there's no way that that makes sense. So then how did he get in this book? The answer that seems to make sense is that he drew upon what he thought were legends to color his satire. Jonathan Swift was a satirist, poking fun at London. It was a political document at the time. It's now regarded as a children's story, like many of these things uh, turn out to be. But the point is, Jonathan Swift apparently drew up on legends that he didn't realize were eyewitness accounts. And that implies that the planet Mars was within 70,000, 80,000 miles of the Earth at one time. All kinds of problems with that. Well, how did it impact the moon? That means it's close to the moon. That means it rose from the horizon 50 times the size of the moon. It implies that there were 85-foot land tides. As you go to the phenomenology of such a near pass-by, that is recorded in history. In fact, there's passages in the Bible that we take figuratively. I saw the mountains melt like wax and so forth. And it may be that those, some of those in Habakkuk and elsewhere are uh, from the pass-by in 701 B.C. that also caused all the calendars on the earth to change. That leads to something else, and that is the name for Mars among the Chaldeans was Baal. And when you read in the Bible about Baal worship, you need to understand they're talking about the planet Mars. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 21. Speaking of Manasseh, Hezekiah was the king during uh, Isaiah's time, and Hezekiah tore down the idols and reestablished uh, the worship of the living God. But when he passes away, his son was worse than useless, and that's Manasseh. And he tears down all the proper things and reestablishes idols. And in fact, Manasseh is credited by the Talmud as the one that martyred Isaiah. In fact, uh, some extra-biblical records imply that he sawed Isaiah in half with a wooden saw. But in any case, in verse 3 of 2 Kings 21, it says, For he built up again, speak of Manasseh, he built up again the high places. By the way, 
Interesting thing, you'll notice throughout the Old Testament that idol worship was always on the high places, right? And God didn't want Israel to put their altars on the high places because they didn't want it to be like the pagan practices. Something else that was on the high places are the groves. Remember, you always read about the groves and the high places. Idol worship. What kind of groves were they? Some of them, Chaldean ones, were phallic symbols. Others may have been the equivalent of Stonehenge, but in wood. There is a wood henge in Scotland and so forth. I mean, there's, if you get into that, you'll find those. These things. It may have been astronomical. Because let me, let, let's read on in Second Kings 21. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah's father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made an idol, as did Ahab the king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Interesting. Why would they worship Mars? You and I, if we went out tonight, couldn't, we couldn't point out, most of you could not point out the planet Mars if your life depended on it. And we're educated in the space age, right? Why do these ancient cultures worship the planet Mars? Answer, it interfered with their lives. Every 106 years, they've been near passed by the earth and caused 85-foot land tides, brought all the walls down, preceded and followed by bolides and meteors, bolide being a meteor that explodes. And there's records of that. So it's, we can at least understand more why they were filled with terror. The city of Rome was built on the Tiber, but 15 miles upriver. Why wasn't it built on the coast? Well, it would make more sense. Why? Because they knew every 100 years or so they'd have 100-foot uh, tidal waves. Why? Because the planet Mars. In any case, uh, verse 4, And he built altars for the, uh, in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord, and goes on. So it's the idol worship. But the point I want to make is that idol worship was involved with Baal, and Baal was the worship of uh, planet Mars. A couple of other things. The Egyptian word for God is the one who watches the word in the Old Testament for Sumer is Shumer, which means the land of the ones who watch. So people are starting to see linguistic links between Sumer and Egypt, and that's leading, indeed, to all kinds of conjectures. Okay, now, say, gee, Chuck, that sounds good, but that obviously is secular science bridging into the occult who you know, what really happened back then, at the time of the pyramids, at the time of Stonehenge, perhaps, whatever. And I'm going to suggest to you there's a couple of answers. One of them you'll find in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 and 7, 8, and so forth, is the famous passage in Genesis of the flood of Noah. And uh, we won't get into the flood tonight because it's something far more important than the flood as part of that narrative. And most of us, if we've been brought up in a denominational church background, have been denied the reality of what the Old Testament actually says. So I'd like you to notice carefully chapter 6, verse 1. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the Benai Elohim, the sons of God, saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all whom they chose. Strange stuff. What on earth are the Benai Elohim? Well, first of all, that word 
occurs four times in the Old Testament and is always used of angels. The Benai Elohim is an Old Testament Hebrew phrase for angels. So what this verse suggests is something really weird. It implies that there were some angels that somehow had intercourse with the daughters of men and had unnatural offspring. Let's read on. Verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit will not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. Verse 4, There were Nephilim in those days. The Nephilim in the earth those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, that they bore children to them, the same became mighty men who were of old men of renown. So the first point is the byproduct, uh, the offspring of this peculiar union were unnatural. The Nephilim. The word Nephilim in the Hebrew means the fallen ones. In the Septuagint version, the Greek word is gigantes, which is mistranslated in the English, giants. They did happen to be giants, we learn elsewhere. But gigantes means earthborn. Earthborn. Well, you say, gee, Chuck, this is pretty spooky stuff. Because most of us, when we went through Bible study fellowship or some program that teaches you the Bible, they like to skirt this issue by selling you the idea that these were the Sethites, that somehow the line of Seth were the believers and the others were worldly, and, and that this Benai Elohim speaks of the faithful ones. It turns out, though, that that's nonsense for several reasons. First of all, the idea of, I mentioned about the Nephilim, was the church position for 400 years through the 4th century. Justin, Athenagoras, Cyprian, Eusebius, also Josephus, Philo, Judaeus, and the Apocrypha, all of them take for granted that in Genesis 6 we're talking about something, some supernatural, weird kind of thing. Julius Africanus, contemporary of Oregon, introduced the concept of Sethites to duck some uh, church uh, criticism and he reputed the orthodox position, and the Sethite notion prevailed to the Middle Ages. And you'll find in many Bible studies, teachers not comfortable with the idea that I've just gone through. The first point, though, is there's no indication that the Sethites, first of all, were distinguished for their piety. If you look at the last verse of chapter 4 of Genesis, it says, And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Then began men to profane the name of the Lord. There's a mistranslation in many English Bibles that said to call upon the name of the Lord. That's not what it says. Enosh was a bad apple. He was the one that started the downward trend. He was a Sethite. The Sethites were not necessarily godly. But more fundamental than that, when a believer and unbeliever have a child, the child is not biologically abnormal, right? So the point is the concept of the so-called line of Seth idea is... It's very economic with the truth, okay, as Ben Franklin might say. Now, what are and what were these Nephilim? The fallen ones. The word Nephal means, it comes from the root, Nephilim comes from Nephal to, to fall. It's the Septuagint Greek says gigantis, which means earthborn. It's interesting, my friends, to notice that our own our Gentile Western civilization traditions from ancient mythology also records this very thing in different terms. 
and uh, Fallen Angels and the Heroes of Mythology by John Fleming and other sources will recount this for you. You know in the Greek, those of you that have been exposed to Greek mythology know about what they call the demigods, the titans, right? And there's all these strange stories. The titans' origin was partly terrestrial, partly celestial. They rebelled against their father Uranus, which is the word for heaven, by the way, and after a prolonged contest were defeated by Zeus and condemned to Tartarus. The word Tartarus, by the way, shows up in the epistle of Peter. But anyway, the word titan in the Greek is the Greek word for a Chaldean word called shaitan, which is the Chaldean word for a Hebrew word called Satan. So there's a link, if you will, between these strange mythologies and what the Bible records as having happened. Now, in Genesis 6, by the way, let me highlight something else for you. In verse 9, it introduces Noah. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his tetelodoth, his generations, his genealogy. And Noah walked with God. What verse 9 suggests is that one of the several attributes of Noah was that his genealogy was not corrupted by the events of the earlier half a dozen verses. So one of the reasons God chose to bring the flood was to erase the satanic plot to corrupt the line of man. God had a plan for the redemption of man. He had that in mind long before Adam sinned. God was not surprised that Adam blew it. But God had already conceived the plan of redemption. And God's plan of redemption required a kinsman redeemer. And part of Satan's plot to prevent the redemption of man was to corrupt the seed of man so there could not be a kinsman redeemer. But God interfered. That's one reason perhaps out of perhaps over a billion people on the earth, only eight were saved in the ark. Whole study of Genesis. If you want to get more into this, you can get the Flood of Noah tapes and, or whatever and, and study into it. But I want you to put that in the back of your mind when you start talking about the uh, things like Mars and this extraterrestrial stuff, which is going to be coming in spades in coming months for lots of reasons. Now... Why am I making such a big thing of this? Because Jesus Christ told you something. He said, as the days of Noah were, so shall the days of the coming of the Son of Man be. No kidding. For you to understand the times we're heading into, it's useful to understand what Jesus meant when he said the days of Noah. So one of the things I commit you to do is do a study of Genesis 6. There's also, in Genesis 6, verse 4, it says there were giants in the earth in those days. Then a very disturbing phrase. And also after that. What does that mean? That's referring to the, at least, to the Anakim. We find that in Numbers 13, verse 33. We also find the bedstead of one of them was 13 feet long, Deuteronomy 3.11. The men of Israel, the, the spies, when they spied out Israel after Kadesh Barnea, they said, we are as grasshoppers in their sight, in Numbers 13 and Amos 2.9 and so forth. The Nephilim. One of them, the sons of Anak, was a guy that you all learned about in Sunday school, a guy by the name of Goliath. Tall dude. And you all know the story about this young kid, David, right? 
He's going to face off to this guy. And he drops the armor and all that stuff. That doesn't work. He takes his shepherd's sling, stops by the brook, picks up five stones, puts it in his pocket. You all know the story. He confronts the giant of Gath, son of Anak. And, of course, the first stone hits him between the eyes. And David runs up there, takes Goliath's own sword, and cuts off his head. Right? You all know the story. And one of the fun questions you ask your biblically-oriented friends, if David's faith was so great, why did he pick up five stones? One was enough. And the answer from 2 Samuel 17 is that Goliath had four brothers. And does that give you an insight into the character of David? He was ready for all five. That's a fun piece of information because you'll discover many students of the Bible are, you know, haven't been sensitive to that, so you can have some fun. But okay, let's, let's leave all the, the Anakim, of course. Uh, that's one reason. You wonder why God told Joshua and the people to wipe out every man, woman, and child in the land. Sounds brutal. Sounds heartless. Doesn't sound like the God we know, does it? He had his reasons because of the Anakim and the rest. So you can do that study on your own. Well, and by the way, those of you that may say, gee, I don't understand this about angels and so forth, let me call your attention to the fact that in Jude and Second Peter, these things are referred to. The angels who went after strange flesh, the angels that are chained in darkness, the apostate angels. When you study the fall of Lucifer, as we did in Isaiah 14, you know that a third of the angels fell with them. Some of them, the ones that apparently were involved in Genesis 6 are in chains of darkness, apparently going to be released in Revelation 9. Don't want to be around then. Never met a demon I liked. Okay. Okay. Question then. Let's get back to what we started with all this stuff. What about the pyramid and Stonehenge? You're going to run into that all the time. I've tried to show you enough to get you intrigued so you're aware of the fact that this isn't it's off the wall. There are all kinds of valid issues that are puzzling sound scholarship about those structures. Fine. But let me remind you of something, just to tuck away your mind. It's after being 30 years in the computer business, there's an expression that goes around the hallways that says, if you torture the data long enough, it will confess to anything. And when you look at the contortions they go through with the units and the uh, a radius of a circle whose circumference is such and such and all the contriving here, some of them are quite provocative, some are quite contrived. And I might point out that Petri and some of the ones that spent their life studying the pyramid before they died denied any sensitivity to the presumably mystical side of the pyramid. Petri's father was a pyramidologist, so was he, and he did a lot of sound scientific measurement. But there's a number of these guys that uh, who got into it said, uh, no way. But let me go on further because there's some other risks that you and I are going to face as we leave this room tonight. I, first of all, would like you to be sensitive to the dangers of fetishes and obsessions like this. And let me give you one that is authentic in which the origin it has no doubt. Turn to Numbers 21. Numbers chapter 21. During the wilderness, God sends a plague of serpents. When the serpents bit the people, they died. He tells Moses, I want you to make a brass serpent, put it up on a pole. Everyone that looks to that brass serpent will be saved. Those that don't will die. You've got to be kidding. Weird. Right? Why is God doing that? For lots of reasons, one of which is prophetic. 
And we, we get that insight when we go to John chapter 3 and we find Jesus talking to Nicodemus at night. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, As Moses raised the brass serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be raised up, so that everyone that looks to him will not die, but live forever. It's a model. It's a prophetic model. Pretty exciting. Pretty interesting. Especially when you start analyzing the Levitical implications of this. Brass is the symbol, Levitically, of judgment. Brass was the metal that could sustain fire. It speaks idiomatically of fire, and so brass speaks of judgment. That's why there was a brazen altar. That's why there was a brazen labor. Everything outside the tabernacle and tabernacle court was brass. Everything in the temple, outside the temple proper, was brass. Inside it was gold. Outside it was brass. Brass speaks of judgment. The serpent, of course, speaks of sin. It speaks of Genesis 3. So a brass serpent is sin-judged. You mean to tell me a serpent is a symbol of Jesus Christ? In this context, yes, because the letter to Corinthians, Paul tells us that Jesus was made sin for us. You and I have absolutely no capacity to understand what that means. That a perfect, righteous, incarnate deity could be made sin. We have no idea what that means. And we can study a lot and get some insights, but we should start out from the beginning to realize far more profound than you and I can probably get our minds around. But the brazen serpent was a symbol of that. Oh, by the way, it's fun. To, I should mention one thing. If I didn't, uh, this is somewhat, by re, I think, by way of review from last time. But, of course, the story of the brazen serpent comes out of uh, the wilderness, ends up in a Jewish capital in Egypt called Alexandria. It gets tailored into a Greek legend of Aesculapius, which becomes the god of healing. And as the symbol of Aesculapius is a single serpent on a pole. And it actually goes back to Numbers 21, believe it or not. But what I'm always amused by is when somebody was designing the symbol for the U.S. Army Medical Corps, they decided, I guess, that it would be more symmetrical to have two serpents around a pole. And you see that on cars, you know, with as a symbol of medicine, the two serpents on a pole. What's interesting, you need to know, is that two serpents is not the symbol of Aesculapius. It's the symbol of the god of Hermes, the god of commerce. And it's always fun to, uh, to uh, see that the doctors who so proudly present the two serpents are sort of telegraphing, uh, you know, that whole business about the doctor who told his patient that he only had six months to live, and the patient says, yeah, that's too bad because I, I can't pay your bill. He says, that's okay, I'll give you another six months to live. But uh, <laughs> anyway. Okay, I'd like you to turn to 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4. Now we're talking about Hezekiah. This is the father of Manasseh. We're three chapters earlier than the last time we were in 2 Kings. But speaking of Hezekiah, it says, verse 4, he removed the high place. He did just the opposite of what his son later did. He removed the high places, broke the images, cut down the idols, and broke in pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made. You've got to be kidding. Yeah. The brass serpent of Numbers 21 was still floating around in Israel 690 years later. Why did Hezekiah destroy it? Read the rest of the verse. He broke in pieces of the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Nehushtan, that is a piece of brass. He had to destroy it. Why? Because it became a fetish. Now here's a piece of material that is not in doubt. It's not a great pyramid or a stonehenge or a shroud of Turin or something. It was authentic, apparently, Right? And it became an encumbrance to their spiritual walk. Now that's interesting. 
I have some dear friends that came to the Lord Jesus Christ through teaching of the Great Pyramid. These people came out of the occult, but they encountered a gospel presentation of the Great Pyramid, one of these variations that float around the community, and from that were so impressed, came to the Lord Jesus Christ, got in the Bible, grew, and they are fabulous, growing Christians today. And they came to the Lord through the Great Pyramid. That doesn't matter. It still can be occultic. Even something that's authentic is dangerous if it takes you out of the Word of God. If it takes you out of the Word of God. Now, you often ask yourself, gee, if I'm getting oppressed by my sin, am I getting condemned by Satan or am I getting convicted by the Holy Spirit? Tough problem. You're really hassled about some sin in your life. It can be one of two things. It can be Satan putting you on a guilt trip, grinding you down. It also can be the Holy Spirit drawing you. How do you tell? Very simple. Is it drawing you into the Word of God or pulling you away? If the sin in your life is drawing you away from the Bible, away from the Word of God, that's Satan putting you on a trip. If your conviction of that sin is drawing you into the Word, that's the Holy Spirit working in your life. When He starts, He finishes. The point is, does the Great Pyramid or Stonehenge bring you into the Word or out? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't make a hobby of some of these things if you're drawn to it, but be careful. They're occultic. Do they have biblical roots? Fine, that's, that's nothing. Most of the heresies prevalent today are built on what originally was a germ of truth, exaggerated, bent out of shape, and used to destroy you. Satan's goal is very clear, and that's to get you derailed. Now, why did I get into all of this? Gee, we're going to make it. Good. Because of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians is probably the most important prophetic book in the New Testament. Chapter 2 is the kernel of it. And in verse 3 it speaks of the man of sin, the son of perdition, the guy that I will call the coming world leader. Some people call him the Antichrist. That, word has, that label has some limitations. But anyway, verse 4, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped. So that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Boy, that can't be far away, because the temple is brewing. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.